2: Right now on Last Call, He Speaks, investors listen. Top analyst Dan Ives out with a bold new call on big tech. He is here. If it's Friday, it's time for insider buys. And the C-suites and some big companies are making major moves. We'll show them to you. Ah, fall The time of changing leaves, football, and government shutdowns. The odds of one just spiked higher. Return to the office reckoning. Will businesses succeed with an aggressive post-Labor Day push to get you? Back into cubicle plus California Utopia. The first renderings for a new city backed by Tech's elite are revealed, but the mayor of a nearby town is hell bent on stopping it. She will join us. And here's a sully side up the U.S. box office is about to do something few expected or predicted. So belly up or buckle up on this Friday. Last call is up live right now. Well, good evening here, good afternoon at West. I'm Brian Sullivan. On behalf of the whole team, we're proud to be 20, one of the 25 or 30 people still working on this pre-Labor Day Friday. All right, first up on Last Call, more trouble for the House of Mouse, Disney, in a big fight with Charter Cable. They are arguing over many things, but the main one is what's called cable carriage fees. That is how much cable companies, like a charter, pay networks like Disney's ESPN, ABC, and more. Disney wants more money. Charter doesn't want to pay. And now there's a standoff. So if you are one of the 14 million homes that use Charter's Spectrum cable, you do not have ESPN or any other Disney channel. In fact, that's what it's looked like right now. There it is. All this, of course, is college and NFL football are kicking off. Not ideal. Now, cord cutting, of course, a big part of the fight is more households simply ditch cable and go streaming only. This Charter versus Disney brawl, though, is not just about these two companies. This is a big deal. And investors wondering if both sides could lose. Disney shares down again. They are now below pre-COVID levels, even when all their parks were shut down. But Charter and other media companies like our parent company, Comcast, also lost money today, along with, look at that, huge drops from Warner Brothers and Paramount down 12 and 9.5%. So at the end of the day or the end of this fight, will there be a winner or could this truly be a lose lose situation? Let's bring in our panel. That is Puck founding partner, Matt Bellany and chief global strategist at BTIG, Dan Greenhouse. Matt, you've been writing about this. Talk about it. Tell us why this is not just about Charter and Disney. This could be sort of almost the, the Alamo for cable and streaming, it feels like.
1: Absolutely, because we are heading into a situation here where these carriage fights are not just going to be about money. This is not just about money. What Charter wants is for Disney to throw in its direct-to-consumer offerings, Hulu, Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, plus into the offering that Charter is giving its subscribers. And Disney is saying, no, 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 these are separate. We'll negotiate a market rate. But they're saying, well, why should we be paying you these outrageous carriage fees if all you're going to do is take that money and prop up your streaming service and bleed your linear networks dry? We're essentially paying for you to compete against us. And that is the existential question that I think all of these media companies are going to have to face if the cable providers – push back on their streaming ambitions and,
2: and and you know Dan here's the thing normally in these kind of fights there's like a winner and a loser right one stock goes up another stock goes down the market said no no this is like both sides shooting at each other they both get hit all these media stocks down the cable stocks down as well is there is there a play here do you got a macro view on maybe how to profit from some of these declines
3: I mean, listen. The, ultimately, the consumer is going to be the winner here because uh, the the trend Matt alluded to it. But the trend in in sub growth over the last call it ten years has been for mid single digit declines each year, and that isn't changing anytime soon. Um, from a from a loser standpoint, uh, clearly, as you as you mentioned, you had far outsized drops in uh, in Paramount and WBD, and that's because for those companies. Because they lose so much money on streaming, 100% of their EBITDA is basically generated from the linear networks. So there's clear losers on the downside here, and the market office just snip that out correctly.
2: In other words, Dan, back to you, these companies, at least Paramount and Warner Brothers, and they will be upset that I say this, but the streaming offerings, probably including our own Peacock, they don't, they don't have a future right now unless they get A, unlimited new investor funds, or B, all these carriage fees that are still coming to Matt's point to keep them alive. I mean, we're at this point now where it's like the, the bloodline and the bloodletting may meet.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's not that they don't have a future. Not even sure what I, I meant some, by
2: that, by the way. So thank you for just moving on. I, I glossed right over it. I glossed <laughs> right over
3: it. Um, it but to be clear, it's not that they don't have a future. I think the future of streaming, and I, I assume Matt agrees, is not 20 different streaming services. There's going to be ultimately consolidation. And you've seen that already with with what's happened with Showtime and, and a couple of other networks, but but the, so so it's not just that there isn't a future. It's just that the current trajectory of unprofitability. Like if you look at Disney, it lost like four billion dollars last year. It's it's the linear networks is where Disney makes all its money. They have to figure out how to make money. And, and the cable providers, like a Charter and a Comcast, for instance, are also trying to figure out how to make money in an environment where everyone's cutting the cord and there doesn't seem to be any end to that trajectory.
2: Well, that's it, Matt. You know, when I say don't have a future, and I say that heavy heartedly, Matt, and obviously they have a future, but my point was, if you just keep bleeding cash, at some point something will have to give, and there's no sign that I – maybe I'm wrong, and if I am, correct me, that any of these, these streaming services – are anywhere close to break even cash flow in the next number of years.
1: Well, there's one that is, and it's called Netflix. And that's the problem is that Netflix created this model, dragged all the other companies into chasing subscribers. The market corrected when Netflix didn't meet its growth goals. And now Netflix has found a way to get to profitability in their streaming service, and the other companies are still chasing To
2: Fair point, how long did it take? How long did it take and how much investor money really was Netflix succeeded? Not because well, it's, it's a great company with a good product, but also because investors were like an Amazon were willing to buy the stock where they could kind of use that as sell stock, sell debt, whatever it may be, and keep the losses from destroying the company. But that, that was net. I don't know if the others can can paramount do that.
1: No, certainly not. And we're, we're seeing that right now. And that's what they're going to have to figure out because the revenue that they're getting from these linear networks is in secular decline. We know it's not going to get better. And the prospects for them reaching this promised land of profitability and viability yeah. in their standalone streaming service is, according to many and including the market, kind of a pipe dream. So where does that leave you? It leaves you as a seller.
3: Yeah, yeah, Dan, and, go ahead, jump in. I would, just to get this back to the to the cable networks, at the end of the day, everyone is trying to, we're in the middle of uh, watching the stew get made, so to speak. Like everyone's trying to figure out exactly how to make money in what is be increasingly becoming the new world. And for the, for the linear networks, sports has always been thought of as the linchpin. No matter what happens, people are going to pay for sports. And so of the 50, 60, 70 million pay TV subscribers that still exist, What percentage of them exists solely because of, let's say, ESPN? Do they leave immediately? when? And ultimately, at its core here is the uncertainty around what happens when ESPN goes over the top. Because at the end of the day, again, several tens of millions of people subscribe to linear networks only because of ESPN. And and in a year or two, when that is a standalone offering, all bets are off.
2: Well, and you know what's interesting? We got got, got it, Matt. We got to go. I'm sorry, but I'll tell you what. If you're like an Ohio State football fan... And your game's on ABC this weekend, and you're a charter customer. You're out of your mind, but you're probably going to find a way to watch, and you may sign up for somebody new. Dan and Matt, great conversation. Big story, a lot bigger than just two companies fighting in the sandbox, guys. All right, in the meantime, here are your market studs and duds for the week. The big winner of the week, Western Digital up 16%. Random but interesting. The second best stock, also a disc drive maker, Seagate. biggest decliner, Dollar General. Lost nearly 16% of investor value. They warned on profit earlier in the week with another big discussion, yep, about theft and other losses from the CEO. A lot of billions being wiped out of these retailers, folks. All right, we are just getting started and coming up, what's a Friday evening without some C-suite intrigue? Your Insider Buy exclusive segment is next. Plus, a big new call on tech that you will want to hear. Promise.
4: Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.
5: Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand.
2: It is Friday, so it is time for your weekly insider buying segment breaking down the five companies with the most buys by corporate insiders. Again, these are not stock buybacks. These are C-level execs buying their own stock with their own money. The names come with our thanks, as always, from Verity Data. And oftentimes, by the way, these stocks will trade higher. On this kind of insider information, not illegal insider, corporate insider information. So listen up. Here we go. Counting down five to one. Stock five, Zimmer Biomet, the med device company, about a 600,000 total buy by multiple insiders. It all follows the CEO's unexpected resignation last week. That stock down 18 percent this quarter. Numbers four and three for the first time ever, they're a tie. First up, you got Lyft a 1 million dollar buy by a board member. That is the second million dollar buy at Lyft by the way this month. Another 1 million dollar buy at diabetes treatment company Insulet. The CEO stepping in as the stock falls to its lowest level in 3 years. It's his first insider buy on record. Now to the top 2. First up, a 1.02 million dollar buy at Sirius XM by the CEO Jennifer Witz, Verity Data, noting Sirius stock soared this summer on a possible short squeeze. It has come off those highs. So the CEO stepping in now, maybe on a little bit of weakness, but the top insider buyer of the week was at natural gas utility, Nysource. the CEO coming in with his first ever buy at just over a million dollars. It actually follows some other insider sales at Nysource. They provide natural gas in Virginia, Indiana, Kentucky, and a few other states. So Nysource, they're kind of a name to watch. All right, there's your top five. Zimmer Biomet, Lyft, Sirius XM, and NYSource. Nice a reminder, we do this every Friday outside of earnings season, and you will only see it here on Last Call. All right, in the meantime, apparently the sky is the limit for big tech. Top analyst Dan Ives publishing a note saying that he thinks a new tech bull market is coming. That's even on top of some of the massive AI-driven gains for big stocks already this year. Names like, yep, NVIDIA but also Microsoft, Google, Meta, and some others. Joining us now is the man behind the note. That, of course, is Wedbush Managing Director Dan Ives. Dan, good to have you back on again. What is the basis and thesis of your note?
6: I mean, Brian, it's really about the fundamental story into the second half of the year. We see a lot of strength when it comes to cloud, cybersecurity, overall IT spend. I think we're going to see an uptick. I think we saw this week, Strong sales Salesforce, and others. And then when you look at AI, in my opinion, it's the biggest transformation we've seen in tech in thirty years. And that sets up for what I believe is already a new tech full market underway.
2: All right, I, a lot of people want to come up. I feel like it's 1999 again, although I'm you know with less air on my side, because a lot of people want to come up to me and all they want to talk about is Nvidia. All they want to talk about is AI. All they want to talk about is big tech. And I do worry, Dan, that the market has become way too heavily weighted on six or seven stocks. Is that a reason at all to worry?
6: Look, Brian, it's a great point. You always have a great pulse on, on what's happening out there. But I, I believe it's in 1995, not 1999, 2000. In other words, I think there's really a star the internet type vibe that we see in terms of spending. Maybe similar 2007 launch of the iPhone. I think the difference now Is that the second, third, fourth derivative, this tidal wave of spend, it's just starting. NVIDIA is the first one. But this is something we're going to see over the next 12, 18, 24 months. And that's why to us, when it comes to tech, I mean, we've been really pounding the table here because I think a lot of these names going into next year, I think it's going to be really a golden opportunity and what I view as a three-year bull market for tech.
2: Well, you made a lot of market bulls out there happy with this note and coming on tonight, Dan. I want to pivot, though, to Tesla, if we can. Last time you were on last call, you had this to say about Tesla.
6: We remain firmly bullish. I think as we go into the rest of the year, demand will be firm going into next year, especially with Cybertruck. I think it's a table pounder at these levels.
2: Well, today, Tesla shares, Dan, they fell 5%. One day, doth not a trend make, but it follows reports of more price cuts in China on the S and the X. The price of the Model 3 actually went up a bit. Based on that, does your Tesla positioning change at all?
6: It does. It's actually more bullish. Because ultimately, when it comes to Model 3 refresh, that's the key. In terms of S and X, cuts there, I view that as table stakes. We're focused on Model 3. I look at model Y, to me in China, there's actually been, I think, improvement in demand relative to where I think many thought. And when I look at the overall Tesla story, 1.8, 1.9 million units, I continue to use the bogey, they're gonna hit margins. Yeah, we've seen the compression, but I think that troughs the next quarter or two. So I'm actually more bullish. We'd be buyers on this knee-jerk reaction.
2: Really? Yeah. All right. What what does that mean? for not GM and Ford, that's not your space. But what does it mean for a a Rivian?
6: Yeah, look, and I think right now, even when you look at GM and Ford, the UAW, that continues, I think, be a big worry if that could ultimately dent some of those plans for EVs. But when you look at Rivian, look, I think me and you have talked about a bunch. I think Rivian actually demand looks strong, specifically in terms of what we've seen in the US, reservations are there. Supply chain and the production is now ramping. That's why Rivian's part of our EV basket. I mean, we've been bullish on Rivian, despite obviously the hiccups that we saw many of them coming out. They've turned the corner. And I think this EV green tidal wave is really going to hit the next level into next year, which is why Tesla Continues to be their world, everyone else paying rent, despite many of the bears.
2: We can agree to disagree on that one. And, and as, as I've said, and you can coin me, but you got to pay me the, the, the credit, the licensing fee. People don't want EVs. They want Teslas. And they're different things. That's my opinion only. Dan Ives, thank you very much, buddy. Appreciate thank it. You. All right. Still ahead, it is deja vu all over again because the risk of a government shutdown just shot higher. Why markets may be shrugging it off at their peril. Frank Luntz is here.
4: Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.
2: All right, welcome back. The start of fall, we're almost there, not quite, brings the return of many things. College and pro football, pumpkin spice lattes, which are gross, by the way, Halloween, Thanksgiving, and more. And and something our Boston-educated producer, Christina, calls leaf peeping, which apparently means going to see the leaves change. Who knows? Anyway... Political strategist Frank Luntz says a government shutdown might also be on the way this fall. Just yesterday, the White House asked Congress to pass a short-term measure that would fund the government through the end of September to prevent that from happening. But with less than a month to go until that September 30th deadline, can a divided Congress pass yet another stopgap funding measure in time? Let's bring in Frank Luntz, pollster and political strategist. Frank, good to have you back on. Will they pass a stopgap measure in
7: time? It's 50-50 and the issue for the business community is predictability. Can they assume that the government will continue to operate? Can we assume that we'll have the full faith and credit of the US dollar? And I wish I could say yes, but I can't because it does become silly season in the fall as the Democrats and Republicans position themselves for 2024 and there's no way of knowing who will get the advantage except for this. The Republicans are correct. The American people want to put an end to wasteful Washington spending. Any way you can cut Washington spending, you're on the right side of the American public. However, every time we do this, Brian, for the last 25 years, the public has blamed the Republicans, not the Democrats. And in the end, all the government employees get paid for not working. All the programs still continue. All the checks still go out. So this is truly performance art at its worst.
2: (sighs) It is. And, you know, and by the way, both sides, both political teams, both political corporations, they're not parties. There's nothing fun about them. These are billion dollar industries the, the, the American public is going to be squeezed in it like selling charybdis, you know, from Greek mythology, Frank. But I guess I got to ask this. Who has the most to lose? Because whichever party has the most to lose is the one that's going to cave first.
7: Well, the challenge for Kevin McCarthy is to keep his five-seat majority unified. And there are 20 House Republicans that are eager, that are chomping at the bit to flex their political muscle and to say no to the deal that happened a couple months ago between Congress and the White House. Now, McCarthy has that challenge. But in the end, it's the president who's going to have to defend why we are spending as much as we are why he's calling for the tax increases that he's demanding, and in the end, why we still have the inflation that afflicts us. The economy is the bailiwick of the White House, not Congress. The performance art is the bailiwick of Congress, not the White House.
2: What advice would you give either team right now? Would it be the
7: same advice? No, it's a very good question. For Joe Biden, it's about making government work for working Americans. For congressional Republicans about holding Washington accountable, about demanding more efficient, more effective, more accountable government, that all the spending should be meaningful and measurable. And in the end, the Republicans win if they're on the side of slicing and dicing the way Washington works. And Democrats or let's say Joe Biden wins if it's about making government more efficient and making sure that it operates the way it's the way it's supposed to.
2: I'm going to switch gears real quickly, Frank, because I'm sure you've got a point on this. I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but you can handle anything, my friend. I know it, which is this. I interviewed uh, R- Robert F. Kennedy Jr. earlier this week, and at the end of it, I asked him a question. I kind of knew what he was going to say, but I was trying to, trying to kind of spur a conversation, which is he would obviously like to debate President Biden. Now, here's the thing. Incumbents, they don't debate in primaries. I don't think they ever have. Maybe back in the 1800s. Who know? I think I mistakenly said 76 once with Ford. That was wrong. You get my point. Incumbents don't debate. That said, given a what, 17 percent polling rate from Robert F. Kennedy, given 69 percent of Democrats consider the president perhaps too old, given a lot of other factors. Should the Democratic National Committee endorse at least one primary debate or no way?
7: No way. This one's an easy question. I believe Bobby Kennedy is going to get somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of the Democratic vote in New Hampshire. And that'll be an embarrassment for President Biden. But better for Kennedy to do that well than for Joe Biden to risk having a bad debate performance. And quite frankly, as we get into the end of 2023 and Republicans begin to have their debates and their caucuses and primaries, I still wonder why the Democrats don't turn to the president and say to him, sir. The economy is getting a little bit better. Inflation seems to be coming down. This is a great time to pass the torch to the next generation. We're not electing Joe Biden at the age of 80, 81, 82. We're electing him for four years. At 86, do you really yeah. believe, five and a half years from now, that he'll be effective? And and, and
2: Ken, I don't know if you saw the interview. Frank will send it to you. If not, Kennedy uh, Jr. brought up an interesting point, which was, you know, because he is a Democrat, although some people argue that there's a lot of libertarian backers of him, even some conservative, whatever. He said this. President Biden is likely more than likely to be the nominee. President Biden will then have to debate in a presidential debate with whoever the GOP nominee might be. And this could be good practice. You don't want to come into the big game without throwing a few warm-up pitches.
7: By the way, I want CNBC to have a Republican debate. I want CNBC to have a Democratic debate because we need to be focused on economic issues. The differences between Republicans and Democrats, no one is better prepared to do that than CNBC. Who knows? Maybe that'll be your debate, Premier. But Joe Biden is in no position and in no condition to take on Bobby Kennedy. He's at the prime of, I don't agree with him but he's at the prime of his career. I've debated him before at the New School in New York. And you know what? I'll be honest. He crushed me on environmental issues. He's quite good. There is no way in hell that the president's going to accept this. And I would say to the president, don't you dare.
2: There you go. Frank Luntz, the words, we're not going to have one anyway, I suspect, but uh, that would be the advice probably I would give as well. Frank Luntz, Always appreciate it. You never know what could happen with some of these debates. Love to do it. All right. An important programming note. Speaking of the presidency, on Tuesday, we're going to be sitting down with another presidential candidate. This time, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. And again, like we've done with DeSantis, like we did with Kennedy Jr., we're going to chat about the things that you care about if you're watching CNBC. The economy, taxes, corporations, and everything in between. That will be live on last call on Tuesday. And again, I'm going to say it. We remind every candidate. And that includes President Biden. They are all welcome on this network, on this program at any time. All right, some good news. Quicker than the ticker is back with all the news that matters and one crazy bull ride of a very different kind. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. Severe weather, including thunderstorms and a dust storm Blowing through Arizona last night, it left thousands without power and caused major travel delays at Phoenix Airport. Just look at that dust cloud. A steer riding shotgun? It's more likely than you think. Nebraska police stopped a man driving down a highway with his bull named Howdy Doody in the passenger seat. No one was hurt and the duo made it home safely. Au revoir to e-scooters. A new ban just took effect in Paris following a citywide vote on the matter this past spring. Trader Joe's issuing its sixth recall in two months. Apparently, their tamales have undisclosed milk in them. Previous recalls include cookies containing rocks, yuck, crackers that may have metal, and insects in the soup. What? The messy effect just won't wear off. Ticket prices for Sunday's game between Inter-Miami and Los Angeles FC are the most expensive for an MLS game ever, and according to ticket marketplace TickPick, The cheapest ticket, more than 700 bucks. Messy mania, it lives right on deck. The day of reckoning for return to office is upon you. Why companies want to put the labor back in Labor Day at your desk. It is a war that has been raging for years. The work from anywhere war. Tears have been shed, jobs have been quietly quit. A turf battle between home and office is reaching the point of no return. And with the clock ticking until the end of summer, who will come out on top? The workers or the companies pushing for their return? Major employers like Meta, BlackRock, and even the president with federal government workers are doubling down on their mandates to have them in the office by fall. In some cases, five whole days a week. Now, some people say they'll just quit if that happens. No way I'm getting on the beltway five days a week. I get it. But with the job market slowing down, is the power structure shifting? Let's get to our panel on this. Founder and CEO of Employment Agency, LaSalle Network, Tom Gimble, and Catherine Minshew, founder of The Muse, a career development platform. Catherine, first to you. It does feel if the job market softens, Employees have had all the power since COVID hit. It feels like that's shifting a bit.
0: You know, there is some shift, but I would say the employee preference for remote work is still incredibly clear. We look at the data across thousands of employees, especially Gen Z and millennial employees, and an overwhelming percentage want hybrid work or want remote work. Um, Upwards of 80% want at least some flexibility. And so I think what you're seeing is that the best employees and the top candidates are often going to get what they want. They are going to join an employer that meets their demands. And so for employers, they often have to make trade-offs. Do they want to be competitive for the best talent? Then they need to be responsive to that talent. If they're more willing to just, um, you know, kind of hunt from a a broader pool and, um, and, you know, they're willing to say take it or leave it, they may lose out on some really great employees.
2: I think Tom Catherine just said that uh, very eloquently that good employees work from home and bad employees go to the office. I don't know. But listen, here's my here's my thing. If you're a company and you know that people may leave and yet you're still willing to say you need to be back in the office, you know, there's something companies know that they're not saying because otherwise they wouldn't do it. Yeah, Catherine
8: said two things back-to-back that I think are are an interesting juxtaposition. One is 80% of employees want to work hybrid or remote, followed up by the great employees can do what they want. And that's exactly where the problem is right now, Brian, is that the average and subpar employee thinks they play by the same rules as the great employee, and it's not that way. And in fact, a lot of the great employees want to be in the office because they know they can make more money, they can make a bigger impact, and they can get promoted and have bigger responsibilities if they're in the office. But so- can't, there's
2: gotta be a reason, Tom, behind it. Companies, I assume, aren't stupid. They don't wanna just sure. be punitive For- on employees that are like, you, you got to come back. No, you got to come exactly back. No, right. you're it's fired. Not, like Brian, it, it's not a penalty. It's not
8: punitive to come into the office. It's a benefit to come into the office. And the world's gone think, upside down. And
2: people, if listen, I think millions. Let, I think a lot of Tom, I love you, but I think a lot of people would disagree with that. Man, you're in Chicago, man. The Dan Ryan Expressway. It's, Terrible. Oh, traffic, traffic is terrible. Traffic's always been terrible. That's
8: why, you know, people moved to the suburbs and guess what followed them? Companies moved to the suburbs. Then the talent moved to the city. So companies moved back to the city. There are jobs in the suburbs. There are jobs in the city. There are jobs in rural parts of the country. And what ended up happening during COVID is people thought the rules didn't apply to them anymore. Guess what? He who, she who holds the gold makes the rules, and what I mean by that is capitalism allows for anybody yeah. to start the
2: company. Brian, Catherine?
8: anybody to start their own company.
2: Catherine.
0: Well, look, I think um, Tom, I agree with you that there often in business are different rules for your top employees and for your your mid and low performers. Where I would disagree is that the top employees are the ones clamoring to get back into the office and it's everyone else who wants to work remote. The data does not support that. And There are top performers who want to be in the office. There are top performers who want to be hybrid and top performers who want to be remote. So I think, look, I'm not necessarily advocating for everyone remote all the time. Some businesses, a lot of businesses really benefit from some in-person time, but I think the five days a week in the office um, it's appropriate for a limited number of roles, but in a lot of cases, these are managers with deeply ingrained personal preferences for seeing and controlling their people that are trying to um, essentially, I think, you know, go against the very explicit stated preferences of a lot of oh, talent. But Catherine, but this isn't open. new.
2: This isn't new. I will, I'm, I'm old. So I remember this Marissa Meyer, who is the CEO of Yahoo, and they did this work from home experiment and they looked at VPN data and they realized nobody was doing anything. Like nobody was like nobody was working. They said they were working and put in like, oh, I have an appointment from eight to five. So I got a red dot on my outlook. But you're actually playing golf. I'm not. There's a lot of great workers out there, but there's a lot of people that will take advantage of it. And Yahoo said, okay, we're scrapping it because we found that people weren't doing what they said they were going to do. There's great workers. There's average workers there's terrible workers. The companies must have some data that they're not sharing to prove. Because otherwise, to your point, who wants to sit in a car 20 hours a week burning carbon and getting fat because you're eating a quarter pounder on the way to work, I'm told.
0: And look, I I, uh, I think the Yahoo experiment was very, very interesting. And um, it is true that remote work executed poorly leads to a lot of wasted hours, but frankly, Who here hasn't been in an office that's full of wasted hours, full of people doing things um, that aren't work? I think that businesses either have figured out a way to motivate employees to encourage and track productivity to make sure that people are truly performing or they haven't. And yes, there's some advantages for having people at a physical location, but I'm not sure that that's the biggest thing that's going on here.
2: Yeah. I, by the way, great discussion, Tom and, and Catherine. We, it was a great article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago about Smuckers in Ohio and what they do. They're doing one core week a year, or excuse me, a month. You can live wherever you want. You got to pay for your own way. You got to put yourself up at a hotel, but you can live in Nome, Alaska, as long as you make it to, to Orville, Ohio, five days a week. And apparently, the employees liked it. We'll see. Tom, they, Catherine, they good they discussion. The
8: they, they good probably dis- own the hotels, Brian.
2: Yeah, I I know. I know. But with a name like Smucker's, it's got to be a good idea. There you go. See what I did there? Coming up, want to know how big the weight loss drug craze is getting? Well, it just swallowed Europe's largest company. Plus, remember that mysterious utopia city being planned by a bunch of tech billionaires in California? Well, it's real. And we've got renderings of it. And the local mayor who wants to put a stop to all of it, like now she's here. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a bonus Friday RBI. We normally don't do these on Fridays, but sometimes there's just something, you know, too random but interesting that we, we can't overlook. And that's the case again this evening, because if you want to know just how big the weight loss drug frenzy is getting, here you go. You've probably been hearing a lot recently about Novo Nordisk. They make the wildly popular diabetes and weight loss treatments, Ozempic and Wegovy. Novo is a Danish company. Now, before this year, I doubt many of you had ever heard of them, Unless, of course, you live near their U.S. headquarters on Route 1 outside of Princeton, New Jersey. But my, how times change. Well, Novo Nordisk just toppled French luxury goods giant LVMH as Europe's most valuable company. Novo's market cap, now more than $425 billion. LVMH, slightly less. LVMH held the crown for about two and a half years. But now, Europe has a new king. If that does not show you how big this weight loss drug frenzy is getting. Try this on for size. With the $425 billion cap, Novo Nordisk is more valuable than Denmark, they're based in Denmark, Denmark's entire annual gross domestic product. I know it's not a direct comparison, but we're making a point. Novo is bigger than its country. That's not a bottomless appetite. I do not know what is. Meantime, if you watched this fine program earlier in the week, you may remember we highlighted kind of a new mystery development in California. It's being backed by some of Silicon Valley's wealthiest people. Now, the area in question is in Solano County. It's about 60 miles northeast of San Francisco. And now the focus of intense buzz, thanks to this planned, quote, tech utopia on a recently purchased 55,000 acres. Well, tonight... We know the name or at least the early name of the project and actually have some renderings. There's a website. It's called California Forever. And it promises, quote, a chance for a new community, good paying local jobs, solar farms and open space as a prime alternative to Silicon Valley. But not all are supportive of the plan, including your next guest. Joining us now is Fairfield, California Mayor Catherine Moy. Mayor, your town right next to this plot of land. What is your issue with this plan?
9: There's a number of issues, but our number one issue is one, that it will endanger Travis Air Force Base, which is in my city, and brings $4 billion to the local economy. And also, it's a major asset for our military, and um, it is the biggest airlift in the world. So uh, that's our big, big issue. Other issues have to do with the farmland that it's taking away. They continue um, that Flannery, this group, this group um, who's already bought up all that acreage. They're the largest landholder in the county and they have bought land now an almond farm and almonds have taken a dump in our um, crop report this year and this does not help. So we have a couple of really big issues out there. Well,
2: tied, I'm a little confused about the Air Force issue. Travis, Air Force Base, obviously extremely important to the military. But what would this mean? to how, What's the connection?
9: The connection is that, that Flannery has bought land and it completely encompasses the base now. You cannot encroach on a base um, with any kind of building, anything at all. Um, it it uh, cannot function that way. And I've spoken um, to the commanders out there and to others all the way back to the Department of Defense. And this is something that they're extremely worried about.
2: Yeah, we got the land. Somebody, somebody was willing, though, Mayor, clearly to sell them the, the property. So they came in with yes. kind of unlimited money. They've sold it. Uh, my guess is they're going to probably be able to do what they want with it unless, what, there are legal Challenges you either are, are, I'm sure you are looking at or somebody is looking at.
9: Yes. There's a group of us that are looking at it. Already there is a local law in place that will not allow it to be built. So I think their plan is to try to overturn that law. And then they may be able to move in, but then they have to get through local uh, politicians um, who are right now not very happy with them to get any kind of um, approval for anything they want out there. And today I found out that they actually want current taxpayers to help pay for the infrastructure to build their dream city, really?
2: Well, I guess you can understand the frustration. I know Fairfield. I I, I know where your town is. I've, I'm not familiar with it that intimately, but got a lot of friends in that area. And you know, they're paying mayor like a million and a half bucks for a three-bedroom, one and a half bath ranch. Somebody's got to do something.
9: Yeah, so here's my suggestion, that these billionaires take their billions of dollars and go back down to Silicon Valley and build um, high-rise apartments there that are low-income, that the employees can work and live right in the same area. You know, put it right next to um, these big tech uh, agencies, because that's where our people work. And they won't have to commute, and if they're worried about the air that our cars are causing— this will help with it a lot. So just build where they are.
2: Dropping the mic, Mayor Moy. I mean, you're just polite. Mayor, Catherine, we're coming in hot. Really appreciate it, Mayor. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, just yes. say, Bill, I love it. Build a 100-story building. Thank you, Mayor, yeah. be well. All right. So on a more serious note, we've obviously been keeping you updated on all the stories, human stories, coming out of Maui after the fires. But the fires not only burned a community to the ground on land, But the fires also set parts of the local harbor on fire, destroying dozens of boats and boating companies in the process. Now many of those businesses are starting to long and difficult journey of rebuilding. Local boat captain Chrissy Lovett here now in her own words telling us about surviving that day and her thoughts on the future.
5: We heard a postcard get on the radio say there were 50 to 100 people in the water. Uh, are there any mariners willing to help? We were in a life and death situation. It was a war zone in there. We're just hearing hundreds of explosions happening. Because once that one boat caught on fire, it just boom, 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 just huge. We're seeing mushroom clouds of fire explosions happening. So that night we pulled two children out of the water. One was pretty small, five to six years old, and then, which was a girl, and then the other was a boy. The little girl, she was, she, you could tell she was terrified. We were downwind of Mahaina. So all the stuff that exploded was coming right at us. The smell was toxic. There was debris everywhere. These waves were breaking and they were literally on fire. And the wind was so strong, we would see these fire tornadoes come down I lost both of my businesses. I've lost three boats. One boat that I had was not insured. I was able to get insurance on the one boat um, four days before the fire. I don't know if there will ever be a normal. Lahaina was just so unique, and it will never be the same.
2: All right, good luck to Catherine and her family. We'll be right back after this. All right, welcome back. All right, what better way to roll into a long holiday weekend with a little sully side up and get this. The box office is back for the first time since 2019 and, of course, before the pandemic. The summer box office expected to hit $4 billion in sales. Could happen any moment. Now, once upon a time, $4 billion was commonplace for summer movie sales. The last 10 years, six summers hit that $4 billion mark or more. So tonight... Stands, if we hit it, to make lucky number seven. What well, can we read into this, though? Joining us now is Comscore Senior Media Analyst Paul and Paul, good to have you back on. I guess the, the, the Barbenheimer, yeah. the Oppenheimer-Barbie combo, along with a sprinkling of Little Mermaid, made this happen.
10: And Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, and a host of other movies that really brought this billion home, a number that a lot of people didn't think we would hit. And in fact, in 2020, the summer only generated $176 million. The previous year was over $4 billion. So you could see how greatly the marketplace was impacted by the pandemic. But now, what a difference a few years makes, a bunch of big movies, of course, the Barbenheimer phenomenon powering nearly a billion dollars in domestic box office and that's how you build the perfect summer box office beast. So this is great. We have Equalizer 3 this weekend. So we're going out on a high note. Really good for movie theaters. People love going to the movies.
2: Yeah, and I think people, what we're seeing is, you know, they want, they want Top Gun Maverick. They want maybe Equalizer 3. Right. But I you know, Barbie, to me, honestly, I thought it would be mildly successful. It has blown my mind. It's unbelievable. Well, a billion three worldwide, and then
10: Oppenheimer closing in. It's at around eight hundred million. Those two films exponentially grew each other's box office because, as we all know, they had the Barbenheimer phenomenon. Just that name being added to the lexicon lexicon can't even say it. I'm so excited to talk about this. That it created a fervor around movie going. And that's the thing about going to a movie theater. If you see what Taylor Swift is doing right now by bringing out a movie about her era's tour, covering her era's tour in mid-October, you can see that even Taylor Swift realizes that the movie theater is where you build this cultural phenomenon, that communal experience, like as happens at a concert, Mm -hmm. also happens
2: in the movie theater. So it's very powerful. We're we're showing this on on our graphics about Taylor Swift. Yeah, uh, She's got a movie. Basically, they took her, ba- her, her era's tour, made a movie. She's not part of SAG-AFTRA, so she's not in the strike. She could promote it. $26 million in pre-sales? Taylor Swift is, it's, what did Jay-Z say? I'm not a businessman. I'm a business man. There you go. Yeah,
10: that's huge. And that's a gift to theaters. I mean, that was announced earlier this week. And with the headwinds created by the actor's strike and, of course, the writer's strike, This is great news for theaters who need content, and we need to get that strike hopefully resolved sooner than later because the impact grows uh, exponentially every week. It's more profound, the implications of that. And, of course, Mm -hmm. actors, they want the actors to be able to go out and talk about those movies, but still, nonetheless, a $4 billion summer. People love going to the movies. Taylor Swift is all in on the movie theater experience, and as we all know, whatever Taylor Swift does Everyone's watching, I so just, I just theater's
2: hope theater's a great place to be. I just hope that the theaters allow dancing. They gotta do it. Let, you, let, they it, they it are. They all are the fa- Taylor, fa- Taylor Swift oh. is encouraging it. Well, Jeez. Taylor Swift doesn't own the theaters. I just hope not yet. She probably, That's true. maybe she does. Paul DeGarabedian, she, thank you very much. All right, speaking of movies, you know what happened 38 years ago? One of the great mysteries of the sea, of, of anything, was so, solved just after 1 a.m. on September 1st, 1985, the wreckage of the Titanic was found on the ocean floor more than 70 years after it sank in the North Atlantic. The wreckage was found during a joint exploration by an American Navy officer and oceanographer as well as a French oceanographer, but the, the dive had nothing to do with the Titanic. It was a secret mission to find wrecks of two US nuclear submarines. The Titanic discovery was not made public until 2008 when one of the oceanographers revealed the truth. Imagine that, government hiding something. Anyway. The discovery triggered a years-long effort to recover the artifacts, including about $13 million in today's money, worth of wine, and other stuff. Wow. Folks, thanks for watching all week. We'll see you on Tuesday. Have a great Labor Day weekend. Stay safe. Be well. Have fun. You've earned it.
4: Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet?